You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open our Bibles to the reading for this afternoon. We're reading from Hebrews 11, verse 1 to 12, verse 3. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. 
by faith. Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. Because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell, after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The sermon this afternoon is based on Belgic Confession Article 29 and the Canons of Dort, Chapter 3-4, Article 14. Now read those together. We'll begin with uh, Belgian Confession, Article 29. For those who may be visiting with us this afternoon, we're not familiar with the Reformed Confessions. These confessions are a summary of what the Bible teaches. They are not over the Bible. They are not on the same level as the Bible. But they do express the import, some of the important teachings of the Bible. 
Article 29, the marks of the true and the false church. We believe that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully from the Word of God what is the true church. For all sects which are in the world today claim for themselves the name of church. We are not speaking here of the hypocrites who are mixed in the church along with the good and yet are not part of the church, although they are outwardly in it. We are speaking of the body and the communion of the true church, which must be distinguished from all sects that call themselves the church. The true church is to be recognized by the following marks. It practices the pure preaching of the gospel. It maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It exercises church discipline for correcting and punishing sins. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it, and regarding Jesus Christ as the only head. Hereby, the true church can certainly be known, and no one has the right to separate from it. Those who are of the church may be recognized by the marks of Christians. They believe in Jesus Christ, the only Savior, flee from sin and pursue righteousness, love the true God and their neighbor without turning to the right or left, and crucify their flesh and its works. Although great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their life. They appeal constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of Jesus Christ, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in Him. The false church assigns more authority to itself and its ordinances than to the Word of God. It does not want to submit itself to the yoke of Christ. It does not administer the sacraments as Christ commanded in His Word, but adds to them and subtracts from them as it pleases. It bases itself more on men than on Jesus Christ. It persecutes those who live holy lives according to the Word of God and who rebuke the false church for its sins, greed, and idolatries. These two churches are easily recognized and distinguished from each other. We'll also go over to the Canons of Dort, chapter 3-4, article 14, how faith is a gift of God. Faith is therefore a gift of God, not because it is merely offered by God to the free will of man, but because it is actually conferred on man, instilled and infused into him. Nor is it a gift in the sense that God confers only the power to believe and then awaits for man's free will the consent to believe or the act of believing. It is, however, a gift in the sense that he who works both to will and to work, and indeed all things in all, brings about in man both the will to believe and the act of believing. Beloved congregation of Christ, we live in a world where doubt is sometimes considered to be a virtue. And this is probably most true when it comes to spiritual matters. The person who is confident about spiritual matters is often regarded as being arrogant. Somebody who states that what he believes is true, and true not only for him but for the whole world, well, that's regarded not just as arrogance, but insanity. Our society tells us that when it comes to matters of religion and morality, it's far better to, to hedge your bets. 
At the very least, you always have to either preface everything you say or add on at the end. You always have to say, well, you know, that's just my personal belief. And by saying that, you maintain the idea that it is doubtful that your beliefs place an obligation on anybody else. Doubt and uncertainty are thus more highly regarded than certainty and confidence when it comes to religion. However, when we go to the Bible, we find a different view of the matter. If you look through the Bible from front to back, you'll find that doubt is presented in the Bible as being a negative thing. Look at Adam and Eve in the first chapters of the Bible. They doubted God's Word and fell into sin. The letter of James says in in 1.16 that the man who doubts is like a wave of the sea being blown here and there and all over the place. The Bible tells us that doubt stands in the way of God's work. Doubt is nothing to, to boast about. Doubt is nothing to rest in, to be content with. Rather, doubt is an obstacle that needs to be overcome. Certainty and confidence, those things are lifted up in the Bible as being virtuous. Doubt is not. Faith is a virtue. And that's partly why chapter 11 of Hebrews spends so much time on the faith of the patriarchs of the Old Testament, the Old Testament fathers. If we go back to to chapter 10 of Hebrews, we find God warning us about doubt. Verse 35 says, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. And then verse 38 says, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. Faith here is contrasted with shrinking back, or or we could say doubting and, and losing confidence. And then verse 39 leads into chapter 11 by saying, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. You see it there? Shrinking back and doubting. Losing confidence. The result of all that is destruction. Belief, faith, confidence results in salvation. And this whole issue of doubt versus faith is something that matters for your eternal destiny. And that's why chapter 11 launches into this long description of what faith looks like. And here in this chapter of Hebrews 11, we see the foundation of what we confess in the Belgic Confession and and in the Canons of Dort, namely that faith is both a mark of Christians and a gift of God. Perhaps some of you thought a little bit strange that we read Article 29 of the Belgic Confession. If you're familiar with the Belgian Confession, you know that this article is usually discussed in connection with the church. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's true. The article does have a title over it that says the, the marks of the true and false church. However, that title was not originally placed there by Guido de Bra, who is the author of the confession. It was added later on. 
And moreover, that article does deal with more than the church. Summarizing what the Bible teaches, that article 29 also speaks about the marks of Christians. We find that in the third paragraph. We confess that that Christians are, are people who believe in Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Christians are people who appeal constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of Jesus Christ in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in Him. You see, this is what faith looks like. People who have faith in Jesus Christ are constantly making an appeal to God. They're pleading to God. Why do they do that? It's because of their sins. The Bible teaches us that all people fall short of what God wants. All people sin. Christians sin too. And sin is a problem because God is holy. The fact that God is holy means that He will not have fellowship. He will not have a friendly relationship with anyone who sins. In fact, God is the enemy of sinners. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 verse 3 that by ourselves... We are objects of wrath. The bad news is that sin separates people from a friendly relationship with God. And this is public, objective truth. In other words, this is true not only for Christians, but this is true for all people. But the good news, which is also true for all people, The good news is that God has provided a way to deal with this problem. Let there be no doubt about it. The way is through Jesus Christ. When someone prays and says, Lord Jesus, please take away my sins and pay for them with your blood, your suffering, your death, and your obedience, then God's wrath is turned away. There's satisfaction. And God says, you are now my child. You are now my friend. Then there's what we call reconciliation with God. And there is only one way that this is possible. And that is by, like it says in Hebrews 12 too, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jesus Christ said very clearly in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. In other words, the object of our faith, who we believe in, has to be Jesus Christ. And it has to be Jesus Christ alone. We can't trust in in anyone or anything else, whether that be ourselves, whether that be another human being, dead or alive, whether that be our reputation or our good works. And sometimes people have this idea that when they die, God will make His decision on where you spend eternity. God's going to make that decision based on the idea of a a balance. If there are are, are more good works on the one side than, than bad works on the other side, hey, then you'll be okay. You'll get to go to heaven. 
Listen carefully. God does not grade on a scale. The Bible is clear that even one sinful word, one sinful thought, one sinful action, any one of those three, or all three together, is enough to place you in debt with God forever. And your good works. Well, God says in Isaiah 64, 6 that He regards all the good things that you think you do, He regards them as something that should be flushed down the toilet. You cannot place your hope and trust in good works, good deeds, hoping that the, the good will somehow outweigh the bad. It doesn't work like that. Nothing and no one but Jesus Christ is the only way to the life that lasts forever with God. There is only hope and there is only life in Him. Now somebody might say, but hold on. What about all those people in Hebrews 11? Sure, they had faith, but they didn't have faith in Jesus Christ. With some of them, Jesus didn't come until hundreds or even thousands of years later. They couldn't believe in Him. Now it has to be said that there is a little, little bit of truth in that. But if we take a closer look at Hebrews 11, we'll soon find that really those people mentioned there had a similar faith to Christians today. Verse 9 tells us about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says there that they had received a promise from God. And this was essentially the same promise that had been there from the beginning in Genesis 3. All the promises of the Bible come from that one, what we call a mother promise in Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, God came and promised that someone would come to save them. God promised that the Savior would crush the head of the serpent. Of course, the serpent there was the devil. And as time went on, this promise was repeated. Repeated to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and also to others. (coughs) And that's why Hebrews 11 mentions the word promise over and over again. All the Old Testament patriarchs mentioned in this chapter had faith. They had faith in the promise God had made in Genesis 3.15 and repeated elsewhere in the Old Testament. They believed that God would send someone to rescue them from sin and its effects. And for the Old Testament believers who lived before the coming of Jesus Christ, this was the same as us believing in Christ today. God accepted them and had fellowship with them because they were made right with Him through faith in the promises leading to Christ. The object of their faith was what had been promised, Jesus Christ. And for us, we know about Jesus Christ because the Bible tells us all about Him. Verse 40 of Hebrews 11 says that God had planned something better for us. And indeed He did. And He carried out that plan when He sent Jesus Christ to live in this world about 2,000 years ago. He lived and ministered on this earth. Christ was always obedient to God, never once sinning. At the end, He bled, suffered, and died. That wasn't the end. 
because he also rose from the dead and he went up into heaven and he did all that for those who believe in him as their savior. Those who are going to be saved from the judgment to come must have Christ as the object of their faith. Christ alone. Like the Old Testament people were challenged to believe God's promises. Also the promises that we, we heard about this afternoon, signed and sealed in the baptism of these young covenant children. Believe God's promises. A heavenly city is coming. More glorious, more incredible than you can possibly imagine. And there is only one gate, one entryway into this city. And that is faith in Jesus Christ. And so God calls every person here this afternoon to faith in Him alone. But now you have done that. You have believed in Christ. Who gets the credit for that? That's the second thing we want to look at this afternoon. Like the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort give us a summary of some important Bible teachings. In Article 14 of Chapter 3-4, we confess from the Bible that faith is a gift of God. And the clearest passage on this point is Ephesians 2, verse 8. A passage worth memorizing, by the way, if you haven't already done so. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now it, in this passage, it is the gift of God. It refers to faith. Faith is the instrument or the tool by which we receive salvation in Jesus Christ. And this faith, God tells us, is itself also a gift of grace. And by grace, we mean that it's something that we don't deserve. In our day-to-day world, there are sometimes gifts that we think we have coming to us. For instance, today is Father's Day. I imagine that there might be some men who would be pretty miffed if their kids didn't get them a gift. Perhaps it's more true for mothers on Mother's Day. Or kids on on their birthdays. They would be upset if their parents didn't get them something. They expect it. But this gift of faith is not like those gifts. No one deserves the gift of salvation in Christ. And no one deserves the gift of faith. No one has this gift coming to them. Our confession explains this further when it says that it is not a gift in the sense that it's just offered by God to the free will of man. As if God holds it out and says, here it is, you can take it if you want it. That's what the remonstrants taught in the 17th century. They believed that man had a free will, that man by himself was able to choose between right and wrong. The Bible teaches us something different. In the Bible, we learn that fallen man is a a slave to sin when he does not believe in Jesus Christ. Man is is not a, a sick patient lying in a hospital ward. No, man's in the basement. Man is a corpse in the hospital morgue. And so it's not possible that God offers the gift of faith and waits for man to accept it. Man is dead. No man would accept it. Fallen man prefers to be in the basement, on his own, 
doing his own thing. Left to ourselves, nobody chooses for God. Nobody chooses to accept God's gift of faith. Thankfully, what the Bible teaches is something different. We confess that it is a gift of God in the sense that actually actually God gives it to man. He puts the gift inside of man. God works through the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ to create faith in people. And we see that in Hebrews 12, verse 3, when it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author of our faith. He's the one who's like an author writing a book. And when that book is written and that book gets published, who gets the credit for it? The author. Only the author. Our faith is like a book that Jesus has written. And so He gets all the credit. He gets all the praise. However, somebody could come along and try to explain this gift of faith in a different way. You could call this the the cooperation model. God does His part by giving man the power or the ability to believe. And then man has to do his part by acting with that power. Perhaps that sounds confusing. Well, imagine a car. The car is sitting by the side of the road. It's got an empty gas tank. God comes and He fills that tank. And then He goes to the front of the car where the driver is sitting there and He hands the key to the driver and the driver has to choose to start the car. That gives you a bit of an idea of of what the view is here, this cooperation model, if we can call it that. That's another view that some of the remonstrants of the 17th century held to. However, we find that Philippians 2 verse 13 teaches something different. It says there that it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. There's no cooperation happening in that picture. It's entirely one party doing all the work. And that one party is God. God takes a fallen person and He creates in them the will to believe. And then He is also entirely behind the act of believing. You want to use the image of the car again? It's not a perfect illustration, but it'll help a little bit. God fills the tank, but God also gets in the driver's seat and starts the engine. That's what Ephesians 2 verse 8 means when it says that faith is a gift of God. Now somebody might say that this makes it sound like man is a a robot. It's not like that. God is bringing to life that which was dead. The will of a person who believes in Jesus is being acted upon by God and then this will itself, part of the person acts. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, a person comes to faith and that person himself can be said to believe. We can say, he has faith in Jesus. But he's not done that by himself. It was God in him. And really, that is the point here. The main issue again is who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? Because people are naturally prideful. And people want to take some of the credit. 
But the Bible insists that only God can be praised when somebody has faith in Jesus Christ. There are many Bible passages that teach that, but let's just mention one. Romans 11, 35-36. Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Now Hebrews 11:6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. The Amen was in Romans 11, 36. <laughs> Hebrews 11:6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only road to a good relationship with our Creator. And when we have that faith, we praise God for it. Because it's His work in us. We give Him all the glory knowing that it's by grace we've been saved through faith. And so may we all, each and every one of us, be able to praise God for this gift of faith in us. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.